right, week two of our series going through the life of Moses. Today we'll be looking at the event where God in a burning bush calls Moses, and he specifically calls him to go to Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to warn them of coming judgment. Now in this, though, God is going to reveal his name. And in our culture, names are significant, but nowhere near as significant as they were for people in the Bible. The people in the Bible, all their names had meanings, and they knew what they were. They were literally composed of one or two, three Hebrew words. And many of our names um, have just been transliterated and changed from culture and culture to language to end up where we're at now, but they have some original meaning. So, for instance, my name is Isaac. Your name's Isaac, too. Do you know what it means? Laughter. It means laughter. That's fitting. That's just, it is going to laugh, man. You and me are the same, man. Jacob, you know what your name means? Uh, Ankle grabbler. That's a good translation. Someone who kind of... So my name means laughter. My daughter's name, Anaya, comes from the Hebrew Anayah. It means God has answered. When we explain her name to her, we tell her it's because God not only answered, but He answered in ways that we could never have imagined when He gave us you. My wife's name, Michelle, is the feminine French version of Michel, which sounds familiar to us, Michael. It means who is like God. Anyone else know, got a cool name and you know what it means? Yeah. God's gracious gift, Janet. What else? We'll do a couple more of these. I didn't plan on this. We'll see what. Anyone named Bubba? You know what the Hebrew, <laughs> the Hebrew origins of Bubba are? What's that? Oh, for William, yes. I thought you meant Bubba. I was like, that can't be true. <laughs> you, you could, uh, I mean, here you could just make something up. I, unless it's something that I'm aware of, you just, you know. Oh, my name's so-and-so. It means the best child of God that ever was. It's John, the disciple that Jesus loved the most. That's what my name means. So these names, in the Bible, they reveal something about the character. And as Jacob's name, it, when you hear Jacob, you actually hear what his character is going to do in the story. So it's very significant. Now, the question for us today is, what is God's name? What is the name of God? And you go, oh, I know what the name of God is. It's God. I go, dear God or, or dear Lord. It's either God or Lord. And, and you have to understand that those are, are titles now, I know most of us were raised to, you know, if you were raised Christian and you said, oh my God, you'd get a slap on the wrist because they say, don't use the Lord's name in vain. Now, parents, you could raise your kids to, to do that, and there's certainly rules for polite talk and un unpolite talk, but God or Lord is not God's name. Those are titles. Those are, those are what He is, but it doesn't reveal who He is. And in today's passage, God is going to tell Moses, this is what my name is. And even more importantly, he says, this is my name forever. You should know this name for all generations. This is my name forever and ever. Let's get into the text for today. If you were here last week, we did a big introduction. You can see it online. Both audio and video are up now. Um, and we are just going to do a slight review from last week and then get us into the burning bush incident. Exodus chapter 2, during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. 
So the review. The people of Israel have been in bondage and slavery and oppression in Egypt for, people debate the timeline, but at least a couple hundred years. And the book of Ezekiel tells us that many of them are not worshiping the God of Israel anymore. They've been in Egypt so long, they're just worshiping the Egyptian gods. Uh, And it's easy to kind of judge Israel, but if you'd been a slave for a few hundred years, and you were crying out for help and deliverance from your God and thought that you weren't answered, you could see that you can begin to believe that maybe these gods of Egypt are more powerful than our God. So the text tells us God hears the cries of His people. And then the scene shifts to Moses. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So Moses, again, from last week, is living an ordinary life now. He's left Egypt. He had to flee for his life. And so Moses kind of, he's, at least for the ancient Near Eastern standard, like he's living a good middle-class life. He's got some goats. He's a shepherd. He's got a wife. He's got a kid. Things are pretty good for Moses right now. But God did not forget his people in Israel. And so Moses' life is about to transition. It's going to go from the ordinary to the extraordinary. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burning. You have to understand, as we go forward, we're entering into sacred text, holy, sacred words, holy, sacred story. This is one of those moments where people in the Bible bow their heads or remove their shoes because we're going to encounter the divine presence. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, and the place on which you are standing is holy ground. God calls out to Moses, and Moses responds in Hebrew, hinani. And this is sort of a template that's used throughout the Bible. And when you've read the Old Testament stories a lot, you know that oftentimes when a prophet is called, God calls them by name, and then the person being called says, here I am. It's hinani. Whenever you see that, it's usually God talking to a prophet, someone he's calling, a leader or a king, and the proper response when God calls you is just, hinani, here I am. There was a rabbi once asked, why did God reveal himself in the thorn bush? Because most likely in this region it was a thorn bush that was burning. And his disciples asked the rabbi, why did God reveal himself in a thorn bush? Why out of all the things did he choose that? The rabbi had a pretty good answer. He said, uh, God could have revealed himself in the carob tree or the mulberry tree, but if he had done that, you'd be asking me the same question. It's a pretty good response. It's like, no matter what thing he chose, you guys would be asking me this stuff and trying to figure it out. But then he goes, this guy's smooth, this this, this guy. He goes, but lest you leave empty-handed, I will tell you the answer. (laughs) So good. He goes, God chose to reveal himself in the humble thorn bush to communicate to his people that there is not 
a piece of this earth that is bereft of the divine presence, meaning God can show up anywhere at any time, whatever His will is. And it also says that very ordinary moments could be transformed to very extraordinary moments very quickly. You don't know what God is up to. You don't know where He is going to reveal Himself. And it tells us something about the the nearness of God as well. God is near and close to us. There's a 17th century Welsh poet who says, the holy haunts the everyday. The holy haunts the everyday. See, we live our lives so fast and jump from one thing to another that we rarely slow down and realize that there are holy, sacred moments going on all the time. Church is a holy, sacred moment. When your child or your grandchild gives you a hug or a kiss, that is a holy, sacred moment that's to be cherished. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. What is the beginning of wisdom? Then Moses said to God, Now here, again, this is not his name. He says to God. The word here is Elohim. Moses says to Elohim. Elohim is what he is. So I am a man, but that's not my name. I am a dad, but that's not my name. That's that's a title of what I am or an office that I hold or a vocation that I participate in. But this is not God's name. Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, this question is fascinating for a number of reasons, because there's, there's questions that immediately pop up. Like, has, does Moses not know the name of God? Has, have the people in Egypt been in slavery so long that they don't know the name of God anymore? Or maybe the people of Israel have a faint recollection of the holy, sacred name that their forefathers used, but they've been in Egypt so long that the name's not even really used because they're worshiping these other gods. And maybe even more so, maybe they have a faint memory of God's holy name, but Moses, growing up in Egypt, he doesn't even know anything about it. So he's like, Which God, who, who are you? You're saying you're the God of my people, but what's your name? I know Egyptian God's name. Talked about this last week, the chief of their pantheon, Amnu-Ra. We know his name. But what's your name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. This phrase, I am who I am. Eye asher eye. It's the first-person version of a, of a verb. The root of the verb is chaya. A karate chop chaya, sounds like. But it's eya, asher, eya. And it's very difficult to translate. I mean, most of us know the I am who I am. Or what other variations have you heard or you've read in your Bibles of how this name is revealed? 
I am who I am, there's I am that I am. I think that's how they do it in the old Ten Commandments movie, right? I am that I am. There's a number of ways this Ea, Asher, Ear can be translated. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I exist because I exist. I am that which exists. I am that I am. There's more than that, too. There's a very good, people make good arguments to translate it. I will cause to be, or I am the one who causes to be, with the implication that I am the one who causes all things to be. And so there's all these different kind of variations of how you can communicate I am that I am. And that sounds complicated, but you do this, you know this intuitively in English. Like if someone were to say, what does I am that I am mean to you in English? You go, well, it's pretty simple. It means I am that I am. In one sense, it's simple, but in another sense, like, that's kind of complicated. What do you mean I am that I am? So there are literally thousands and thousands and thousands upon thousands of thousands of pages discussing, reflecting, and wrestling on what exactly I am that I am, or means. And they all sort of, they have a similar meaning, but there's just slight different nuances. And one, one idea is this, and I kind of like this one. It says that God used the flexibility of the Hebrew language in a way to say, oh yeah, that's right. That's right too. That's one, that, yeah, it's that too. It's like there's sort of all of these things. The flexibility of the language allows for all of these things to be true. But the idea is this. God is absolute being. He can, in philosophical terms, he is the only being that cannot ex- not, not exist. He is an essential, he is a necessary being. He is the ground of all things. He is a necessary being. The philosophers in the in the kind of Greek world, would call this the unmoved mover or the uncaused cause. Later, Christian philosophers would take those terms used by the Greek philosophers and say, yeah, what they're shooting at is this same thing. There is a being who doesn't come into being, but he causes all that comes to be to come to be. He is unchanging. He is unmoving. He never began. He is eternal. He's without start or finish. And all of those things are encapsulated of this idea, I am that I am, Ea, Asher, Ea. Now this is where it gets, this is mind-boggling. This is, some of you are going to love this, some of you are going to want to check out, just stick with me, it's, it's worth it. It's, it's, this is bizarre. God says, this is my name, go tell him my name, Moses, I am, I am that I am. And then this immediately after. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, we'll come back to that, but notice that's all in capitals, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Okay, so what's his name in this one? In English, in English Bibles, it says the Lord, but it's all capital. Then he goes, oh, you need to understand, this is my name forever. The Hebrew behind the word here is not Eashaya. It's the best we can think to pronounce it is Yahweh. We'll get to the pronunciation in a moment. But it's very tricky because you don't want to get God's name wrong, right? He's just revealed himself, burning bush. He's the holy mighty one. He says, this is my name forever. I am to be remembered throughout all generations. 
And in the previous verse, he says, my name is I am. Now, all of a sudden, he goes, oh, no, I'm Yahweh. Now, what's going on here? Remember that karate chop word, the root word, hayah. Hayah is the root. And in Hebrew, in the first person, that is aye, I am. In the third person, it changes to something like Yahweh. Now, this, there's a mystery here. So God says, my name is I am. And then, following that, for all 6,807 occurrences of God's holy name, it is no longer Ea, but Yahweh. Yahweh is the third person form of Hayah. So when God says his name, to reveal it, it's first person I am. Then as his people call out to him for the rest of the scripture, it's third person, it's he is. So God says, I am, you say, he is. When God's speaking, I am the grounds of all being, of all reality, uncaused cause, unmoved mover. And when you approach that which is borderline unapproachable, you have to go in fear and trembling, it's he is. He is. And then he says, and this, this should, you should be wondering, because this is kind of scary, because whether or not you say it in the first person or the third person, God says, this is my name forever, thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations, and no one's really referring to God like this. So you should, you, did anyone go there? It's like, well, he just said, man, that's his name, don't you want to listen to him? No one's calling him that. We say God or Lord. So we'll get to that in a moment. We'll just leave that tension in the air. I want to show you how the name is constructed. So, because there's a lot of confusion, confusion on this. In ancient Hebrew, when you, when you wrote the language, you didn't use vowels. So when you see God's holy name in the Old Testament all 6,807 6, times, you're going to see four letters. yod he vah it reads right to left, not left to right like us. And that roughly corresponds to the English letters Y-H-W-H. So when it was a written language, you didn't have to write the vowels. They knew the vowels when they spoke it. Um, the, the, the problem is, is later on, people who stop speaking the language and are translating the Bible encounter Y-H-W-H, Yod-Heh-Vah-Heh, and they don't know the vowels. They don't know the vowels anymore. So it took place uh, very recently. I'm talking only a thousand years ago is people tried to start figuring out how to pronounce the name. And what they did was they took the vowels from the Hebrew word Lord, Adonai, and they inserted them into the four letters. They let them be the vowels. And long story short, you don't have to understand all the grammar and the, the letters in the language, but you, you've probably heard the term Jehovah. Jehovah is the artificial construction of basically scribes and Bible scholars trying to figure out how to pronounce this name. But they knew what they were doing. They, didn't, they knew they didn't know how to pronounce it, and they were just adding in Adonai so that they could speak the language. And the reason why everyone forgot how to actually pronounce it is because roughly 2,200 years ago, Jews in what we call the Second Temple period stopped pronouncing God's name out loud out of reverence. So if any of you have Jewish friends who are religious Jews, sometimes they will spell God G-D, 
They'll leave out the O out of reference. Or they won't say the divine name. You'll hear them say Hashem. Hashem is the Hebrew word for the name. So rather than speaking God's covenantal, holy, revealed name, Yahweh, out of respect, they'll just say the name. Think of it like this. If you go into the doctor's office and you were raised to show respect, you don't go, hey, Bob, good to see you again, man. I got the flu. It's bad. Fix me. You say, doctor, or maybe Dr. Bob, or you talk to someone, you say, mister. And so, basically, what Jews started to do, roughly in the second temple period, is they referred to what God is, Adonai, Lord, Elohim, God, Hashem, the name, and out of respect and reverence, stopped using the word Yahweh. Now, the issue, though, is that God revealed His name to His people. He revealed his name to his people. He wanted them to know his name. Now reflect on that for a moment. Who are the people you want to know your name? People who you actually want to be in a relationship with, right? And the people who you are in a relationship with them, you don't refer to them with their titles. My wife, Michelle, I don't introduce her. Here's wife. And she says, here's husband. This is Michelle. And let's say you go to the doctor's office and you have a good relationship with the doctor. And you go, hey, doctor. And the doctor will usually say, Isaac, please call me Bob. Because there's an intimacy there when you know someone's name. Think about this. God told his people his name. And he said, this is what you are to know me as for all generations. And it's like anything as we, what we humans do. Somehow God made it clear. You give it a couple thousand years and we don't even know how to pronounce it anymore. Now, the, the big reconstruction of all the rules of grammar in ancient Hebrew, it's a big debate, but the closest pronunciation that we could know for that divine name today is Yahweh. Something, something around there. The God of Israel wanted to be known, and he wanted his people to know him. Now, again, we're modern evangelical Christians, and so we've had decades of an emphasis on having a personal relationship with Jesus. But you've got to understand, that's, that's a weird idea. If there is a God or gods and goddesses, if they do exist, what makes you think they want to have a relationship with you? Why would you think that? See, see, we just assume that. Christianity is about having a relationship with God. That's a radical, revolutionary idea. If, if, you're, if you're an Egyptian thousands of years ago, Omnura don't care about you. You exist to, to, to ser- literally serve him food and put him to bed. I mean, that's how the, te- the temples work for, in many of the cultures. The priests were meant to put food out for the gods. And they do rituals to put them asleep and then to wake them up. You take care of the gods. The gods don't care about you. You're their slave and that's it. But this one God, this God of Israel, wants his people to know him and for them to know his name. Now, 
back to this, why, aren't we call, why, why don't all of our worship songs talk about Yahweh? One, it's, it's, it's Hebrew and it's weird and it's hard to understand. But some, something happened. Something happened. No one in the Old Testament would ever dare claim to be the Eya Asher Eya. No one dared claim in the Old Testament to be I am. If you made that, if you said it in the first person, I mean, saying it in the third person, Yahweh would get you killed. But saying it in the first person, I'm going to say it just like God said it about himself. No one did that, ever. That's the thing that'll get you killed. But then we get to Jesus. And he not only takes the divine name in the third person, Yahweh, Jesus is the only human being to actually use it in the first person. Jesus is being confronted by some of the religious establishment, and he ends the confrontation like this. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, this is where it gets tricky because the New Testament's written in Greek. So when you read that I am in Greek, it's ego, a me. That's the, the Greek. So, so some people would say it's like, well, we don't know if what he was saying in Hebrew. This is the, the New Testament was written in Greek. There's a way we know what he said. And the way we know what Jesus was doing is the reaction. Jesus just didn't say, oh, ego, a me, like I am Jesus. Look at the response. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, which means I'm pre-existing. I was already there. And then he says the divine name, and the way you know he uses it is because the people pick up stones to kill him. So whatever debate there is about what Jesus was trying to accomplish, the text is letting you know exactly what he did. They try to kill him. They know what he's trying to do. And then all throughout the Gospels, there's this, these other things where Jesus refers to himself as the I am, pause, something. I am the bread of life. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. And you go look, about, you go look around at those texts and see the responses and see what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is hinting at something. Jesus is claiming that the divine name applies to him. He is the I am. Which brings us to another point. What is God like? What is he like? Because in the burning bush, you get the self-existent one. You get the unmoved move, the uncaused cause, the one who causes all things that come into being. But human beings, we don't, we don't do well with abstraction. You know, we don't do well with that. We do best when ideas are embodied in a person or a story. So if you want to know what God is really like, you don't sit reflecting on the third-person usage of the verb to be, although that's incredibly important. If you want to know what somebody is like, you look at how that person embodies their name. Or in other words, if you want to know what God's like, you look at Jesus. Because God is Jesus-like. Jesus carries the divine name. And so what is Jesus like? 
what does he reveal to us about God? Jesus reveals to us that when he sees the hurting, the downcast, the trodden, he's filled with compassion. The Greek word that the gospel writers use for compassion is splachnizomai. When Jesus sees someone hurting, splachnizomai literally means there's like a turning in the guts, in the bowels. You know when you're so moved by something, you feel it in your gut? You can't handle it? When Jesus sees suffering, he feels it in his gut and he responds. What else is Jesus like? He's a friend of sinners. He's a friend of tax collectors. He forgives the prostitute. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Now you go and sin no more. He's a praying for his enemies type of person. He's a turning the other cheek type of person. He's a reconciliation type of person. And ultimately, he reveals, us, he reveals to us what the love of God is like. The love of God is cross-shaped. If you want to see, see, here's one of the big problems is our culture loves to use the word love in, like a, in, in whatever way we can. It's like, what, is it, what does that even mean? One time I was talking with someone about a difficult conversation, incredibly nuanced, and the person's conclusion was just, well, if we just learn to love each other, it all work itself out. And there's truth to that, but I want to say, well, what do you mean by love each other? What does that mean? And for Christians, we don't look up Webster's dictionary and find love and then go, oh, that's how I ought to live. For Christians, our dictionary is the Bible, and we don't turn to a word, we turn to a person. What does love mean? It means Jesus. If you want to know what that looks like embodied in action and in story and in person, you look at the life of Jesus. You read the Gospels, and you go, that's the person I need to be. So what is God like? God is Jesus, and he looks like Jesus. That's how you get to what he's like. Now, simultaneously, so you have, and this is what's interesting, is Jesus gives us a simple understanding of what God is like because he embodies it. But the New Testament authors were still concerned about us understanding that, yeah, that's all true about Jesus, but you need to understand he's still the unmoved move, uncaused cause. He is the I am. And so you get verses like this that talk about the vastness and the greatness of Jesus. Colossians 1, 5 through 17, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That almost sounds just like an explanation of what the, the verb I am means. It's like, they go, oh, you want to know what I am means? It means everything was created by him and for him, whether visible and invisible. He brings all things to be. My favorite part of this, and you can, spend, you can spend days reflecting on this. It's incredible. It says, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. All things hold together. So in philosophical terms, to say God is the uncaused cause, it means that he causes all things to be. He puts into motion all of reality. But the biblical authors would go further and say, it's not just that God causes all things to be. Currently, presently, all things hold together by his divine will. All things hold together. 
Now, as science gives us more and more knowledge about the universe, its laws, its inner workings, you realize how crazy complex this is. I mean, your body, every second, every second, your body makes roughly two million red blood cells. And they all know what to do. And by the way, they're living organisms. Every second, your body makes two million living organisms, red blood cells, and they all have a job, and they do what they're supposed to do. Your body has roughly 25 trillion red blood cells. How many atoms are in your body? I don't even know how to say it. It's how many atoms roughly are in a human body? It's the number seven followed by 27 zeros. Your body is mostly empty space. Go back to high school science class. Your body's mostly empty space. So those atoms, they don't like fill in every part of you. You know, they have a center and there's orbits and movement and energy. Seven to 27th power of atoms in movement, in rotation, in orbit, all sticking together, even though you're composed of mostly empty space. They all do exactly what they were supposed to do. The Bible says there is someone holding all things together, because that's just your body. Forget about everything else that's going on in the room. Forget about everything else that's going on in Gilroy. Forget about everything else that's going on planet Earth. Forget about everything else going on in the universe. Something holds all things together. And so what the Bible does with God again and again and again, and this is, this is beautiful, is it paints him as, man, you can't even understand this guy. Uncaused cause, unmoved mover. I am that I am. He's holding all things together. But he wants you to know his name. And he knows the hair on your head. And he knows your name. And he loves you. See, God is so beyond us, but then he's also near to us. And if you believe that God is actually holding all things together, including every atom in your body, you believe that presently, right now, the divine hand of God is holding you together in this very moment. And if he did not will for you to live and to hold together, you would cease to be. It's not like, oh, he, he helped your mom and dad get pregnant with them right now. Every atom in your body is being sustained by the living God, which means God is closer to you right now in this moment than you can ever imagine. Augustine said, North African theologian in the early church said, God is closer to me than I am to myself. Or sometimes it's translated, God is more intimate to me than I am myself. God's that close to you. So he's the one in the burning bush, the unmoved move, but he's also the Jesus who loves you, knows your name, and knows the hairs on your head. Now, to the last question that I left up in tension. Okay, there's all this stuff about Yahweh and Jesus and this stuff, but okay, get back to that thing about why don't we call God Yahweh? Why don't we use his name? Well, because 
God put a name above that name. In one sentence in the Old Testament, God says, Yahweh is the highest name. It is the name above all names. In fact, in Isaiah, Yahweh says of Yahweh, every knee is going to bow before Yahweh, and every tongue is going to confess Yahweh. It's the highest of all names. But then watch this. This is how the early church spoke of Jesus. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God takes the Son, Jesus, and bestows upon him the name that is above every name. And that name is Jesus. Name is Jesus. And what has taken place historically? It's exactly that verse for 2,000 years. Because there's very few people that can tell you, oh yeah, God's name in Hebrew, yod heh is Yahweh. But I can tell you right now, today, on this Sunday morning, you are gathering with other millions upon millions of Christians from different nations, with different tongues, with different languages, with different ethnic backgrounds. And you are joining them as they worship the Son, Jesus. Jesus. And so why don't we use Yahweh? There's nothing wrong in and of itself using that. But when you get to Jesus, God says, the name now that is above every name is Jesus. So for us today, there's some things that come out of this. One, we have to realize how close and near God is. And if God is this close and this near to us, you have to understand, in one sense, there's no such thing as ordinary moments. There's no, like, the universe is infused with the holy and the sacred. Every single person in this room right now is being upheld, sustained, and held together by God's will. You are made in his image. The breath you breathe is from him. And the reason why the empty space that composes your body just doesn't fall apart is because God wills your being. You'll never meet an ordinary human. Every one of you is extraordinary image of God-bearing individual. What that also means is that we should approach the world differently, like God is actually at work in the world. And we don't have time to get into it today, but we don't live as if God is actually at work in the day and can do the miraculous and can transform lives. Moses has the same issue. If you're familiar with the story, God does all this, and it's like there's miracles, and then God says, well, you better go to Pharaoh and tell him what's up. And Moses says, mm-mm, nah, don't want to. And it's like, God's like, well, why not, Moses? And then Moses gives him this long list of excuses. He's like, I'm, I don't know how to talk. I don't know. I've got bad grammar. I don't, I, don't, I don't talk good, God. I just stutter. I do all these To someone else. And then by the end of it, it says, like, God's angry. He's like, Moses, listen up. Don't you know who I am? And don't you know who goes before you? Do you understand these things? Do you know who goes before you? 
And so Moses is like us, like we believe, but then we go out into the world and, and we're fearful. And we, don't, we don't really live as if God is actually on the move. And what the burning bush story tells us is that God is near and close. He has a name. He knows your name and he wants to do something with you in your life in the world. And you should live as if God is real. And that means there are holy, sacred, transcendent moments all around us all of the time. And the ushers can pass, start, begin to pass forward communion. And the other, the other major takeaway from this is, again, this idea of knowing God. And as we prepare for communion, if, if, you're, if you're not a Christian, you're just checking the church out, Jesus out, this is something that Christians do. Don't, don't feel the need to participate in it. You just pass, pass it down. Um, but Christians have this idea that we can know God. We can have a relationship with him. And that takes place in a number of ways. Through scripture reading, through prayer, through corporate worship, through being in community with other Christians, to hiking, being out in nature. The Bible says when you look around at creation, the divine attributes are revealed in that. There's all of these things. But one of the, the ways we often overlook is through communion. The early church took communion every week and you remembered and you reflected on what Jesus did on your behalf to know you and to save you. So before we do that, a, a, a challenge. One, are you, are you living like God is, is truly real and up to things, confronting evil, preaching the gospel? Are you living like that? Are you just living life like it's always ordinary, ordinary, ordinary? And then two, do you understand the great privilege you have to know God? The other gods of other cultures, they didn't, they didn't care about you. They didn't know your name. They didn't invite you to the table. In communion, God invites you to his table he wants to know you and to be known by you. Do you know and are you truly grateful for the privilege and the honor of being invited into a relationship with God to know him? As tradition, we stand as we take communion. The Holy, the Divine One, the Eye Asher Eya, the Yahweh of the Old Testament, comes to us as the Son, the Son of God, Jesus. And Jesus dies on our behalf to bring us into right relationship with Himself. He says, This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He takes the cup and says, this is my blood, this is the blood of the new covenant spilt on your behalf. As you take it, you are pledging to 
proclaim the resurrection of Jesus until he returns. And so, Lord, we want to be faithful to the mission that you've called us to. We want to live as if you are real and at work in the world. As we transition into worship, a closing thought. Where is the burning bush now? On what mountain? It's not on a mountain. Where is the divine presence now? What temple? It's not in a, you can find it, it's not in a temple. The presence of God is in and with and alongside of his people. So as we sing to the name that is above every name, know you are walking on sacred ground. This is holy, sacred space and time. We worship Jesus as his redeemed people. And so, Lord, be honored in this time.